Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode The King of Broadway, The Genius of Tommy Toon, Part 3. This and every episode of Broadway Nation is made possible in part by our Backstage Pass Club members. A heartfelt thanks to all of you for your generous support for the mission of this podcast. If you too would like to become a member of the Backstage Pass Club, you can find information on exactly how to do that in the show notes for this episode at www.broadway-nation.com. This is the third and final part of my recent conversation with Kevin Winkler, author of the fascinating new book, Everything is Choreography, the Musical Theater of Tommy Toon. If you missed parts one and two, you may want to go back and listen to those before starting on this one. As we ended the last episode, Tommy Toon had just received two 1990 Tony Awards for his direction and choreography of Grand Hotel. The following year, he won two more Tonys for the Will Rogers Follies and became the first and only person to accomplish that feat two years in a row. The Will Rogers Follies also received Tony Awards for Best Costume Design, Best Lighting Design, and most significantly, Best Score and Best Musical, beating out Miss Saigon in the process. Today, we start with a behind-the-scenes look at the making of that incredibly entertaining, but today somewhat forgotten musical. Here we go! Will Rogers is a very different show than Grand Hotel yeah. and does not come out of this workshop process and comes from a very different kind of place. How did he get involved with Will Rogers Follies? Will Rogers Follies was the brainchild of a producer named Pierre Cosette, who had done a lot of things, but he was probably best known for producing the Grammy Awards telecast on TV. And he'd had the idea to do a, a show about Will Rogers for a long time. Toon was tangentially involved with this for a number of years. Even before Grand Hotel. Even before Grand Hotel, yes. At one point, it was to star and have score written by John Denver. 
and that didn't happen. And then Betty Comden, Nate Off Green, Cy Coleman came on board, and Peter Stone came on board to write the libretto, the book. On and off for a number of years. You know, when you work with people this caliber, people like Cy Coleman, Tommy Toon, they were busy. Cy Coleman was busy doing City of Angels. Toon was doing Grand Hotel. It was slow to get moving. And there were issues with the book. You know, Peter Stone at first didn't really want to write the book for this show because he said Will Rogers had a spectacularly uninteresting life. He was unknown. Then he became known. Then he became a big superstar. And then he died. Right. There's no drama. There's no conflict. But he found a way to kind of tell his story as a kind of, I think of Will Rogers as one of the last big concept musicals, because he found a production concept, a framework to show vignettes from across his life, all within the context of a Ziegfeld Follies extravaganza. It's actually kind of brilliant, really. Mr. Will Rogers, Fox Theater, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Dear Mr. Rogers... Pleased to invite you to join the ninth edition of My Follies, starring W.C. Fields, Eddie Cantor, and Ed Wynn. Stop. Can offer you a salary of $600 a week. Stop. Expecting an immediate and affirmative reply, most sincerely, Florence Ziegfeld. The original title was what? Ziegfeld Presents Will Rogers. So the concept was right there in the title. from Absolutely, from the beginning. Well, it would be on the stage of the Ziegfeld Follies with Rogers reliving these vignettes and major events from his life. And sort of fascinatingly, it exists in the present day and in Ziegfeld's and Will Rogers' time all at the same time. They played with time in interesting and kind of disquieting ways. So, for instance, Rogers was very famous for pulling out the day's newspaper and reading the headlines and riffing on them. And so when Will Rogers would do that in the Will Rogers Follies, he'd pull out the New York Times from 1991. If you were seeing it on May 10th, that's the edition he would pull out and quote from. So it's a fascinating concept. It's one of the things that I think so interesting about the show is that it was emblematic of changes that were happening in the theater, changes that have only accelerated since then, in the 30 years since the show was produced. And that was that costs were beginning to skyrocket. Will Rogers Follies was always envisioned as an expensive show. It had to be lavish. The funding puzzle took a lot of time to put into place. The number of producers and the number of investors that you needed to pull together to make these shows happen made them so complicated. And Toon's period of greatest success was during all of this, when these things were happening. You know, Nine had a complicated funding structure, my one and only, on and on. So he was not unusual used to this, and he stayed out of that, really. But Pierre Cossette, who was the lead producer on this, really had problems raising the money for this. They got the star, Keith Carradine, and there was some difficulty finding a star for the show at first. They had everything ready to go, and Cosette floated the idea of postponing the rehearsals for another season to give them a little more time to raise the money. And Toon said, I don't know if I'll be interested in another year. So Cosette said, okay, all right, we'll get everything together. So it just showed you how large Toon loomed as an artist and a creator and a real box office deliverer of hits. And his willingness to flex his muscles and say, here's what I need. Here's what I need, and you need to get it together so that we can do this show. They did have kind of a quasi-workshop period before they went into actual rehearsals 
Animals was all done at the Nederlander Theater. Again, because Toon liked to rehearse in theaters, for a number of years, he worked at the Nederlander Theater quite a bit. If you go back to the old days before Rent moved in and stayed there for 12 years, the Nederlander was not a very sought-after theater. No one wanted to be there. It was frequently empty. And so they built a replica of Tony Walton's full stage-encompassing staircase on the stage of the Nederlander Theater to rehearse. But anyway, the funding puzzle was very complicated, and part of it involved an agreement with a, a Japanese company, whose name I'm forgetting now, but one of their requirements was that they would film the show to be shown on Japanese TV and sort of their equivalent of HBO. And so there's a beautiful stage filming of the show. Which is on YouTube, right? now. Sometimes with Japanese subtitles, but <laughs> that's just part of the complicated funding puzzle yeah. that was part of doing a show at that point. But we benefit from that now that you can just watch the entire production, spectacularly filmed too. I mean, it's a beautiful video capture. Yeah, it really is. You were talking about the conceptual aspect of the show, which again, I don't think people remember or appreciate how innovative that was. So it was state-of-the-art 1991 stage technology evoking this grand bygone era of 1920s and 30s Broadway, and particular Broadway niche, the grand Ziegfeld reviews. One of the things that's interesting, I mentioned earlier about him being a real minimalist, as right. all great direct choreographers are, this was his most opulent show by far. It was far removed from Nine or Day in Hollywood and Night in Ukraine or even Grand Hotel. And yet it had a kind of simplicity to it. There were very few set pieces. There were things that were flown in, but everything was done on that staircase. And he used it in a myriad imaginative ways to create different settings. So even though it was, you know, fabulous costumes, Willa Kim costumes, just brilliant, it had a streamlined elegance to it. It was still a unit set, basically. The only set was that big staircase. Now, they made that staircase do everything in the world. It lit up, it retracted, it did everything. It did everything but sing and dance. (laughs) That's so different than what we see today. But one thing just reminded me of in Grand Hotel, there were no props. Everything was mined. Not one single prop in the entire show. We'll take a glass together. They're on a bar drinking champagne. They're just miming the champagne. Yeah. Again, that's so alien to what we see today. And yet I remember so many shows, Raisin was done that way with no props back in the 70s. It was part of the essence of that period. Yeah. Toon says, too much stuff. You know, he lives his life this way. Where he lives, his apartment is, it's not bare, but there's a sparseness to it Mm -hmm. that to me, it's very relaxing and calming. But something else that struck me when I was working on the Will Rogers chapter for the book, directing and choreographing a major multi-million-dollar musical like Will Rogers Follies, you have to be sort of the creative CEO of a large corporation with dozens of moving parts, with different departments reporting to you, assistants, associates, the designers, the musical staff, and so forth. Again, keeping all those balls in the air. It struck me that Toon had a really kind of symbiotic relationship with his designers. This was another show that was designed by Tony Walton. And Toon is also an artist, a painter, and a sketcher. And he storyboarded the show before he even got started. And he had ideas for using rope as a motif. You know, Will Rogers was famous for his rope tricks. He had the idea to incorporate ropes as a kind of design motif. And Tony Walton, of course, took that and ran with it. Give a man enough rope. 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 It's good to set your sights up high, but don't expect high in the sky. A guy might rush. A guy might rush. 
Or that old pot of gold Might not reach the rainbow's end Because, my friend, the world is round Or so we are told There's so many witty, clever touches. The passerelle around the orchestra pit was ringed with rope and so forth. So many clever things. And Tony Walton said the storyboards really helped him clarify what Toon needed in terms of making the stage useful to him and evocative of the period. So the storyboarding, if I were going to sit down and storyboard, I would have to be stick figures and it wouldn't look very good. But Toon, because he's an artist, could really give a real flavor of what he was looking for. But I think the relationship with designers, with lighting designers, costume designers, scenic designers, can't be understated. That relationship of a director with those artists. Well, he seemed very comfortable working with teams of people. He often had teams of choreographers and co-directors, co-choreographers working with him and obviously managed that very well. And people were able to incorporate their work. They were doing substantial parts of the show. And yet I don't think people felt like they were being taken advantage of. That was all part of the way he made these shows happen. Right. As a conceptual director, he has the ideas for things. But again, because he's the creative CEO of a big show, he obviously can't spend all of his time just on step. So he'll come up with the concepts, assistants and associates will flesh them out for him. He'll adjust them, fine tune them, cut them if he needs to. So there's a give and take and a back and forth. And Toon's always been very generous in giving credit to people who contributed to his shows. So many of the shows he was billed as the co-choreographer, the co-director of those shows, which is really fascinating. He didn't think twice about sharing that credit and he didn't feel like it diminished him in any way. No, no, not at all. So Will Rogers Follies, again, a spectacular show, a big hit. It's in this era of the mega musicals, the British mega musicals. It's sort of holding the place for America in that era. We got to prove that we can do it just as well as the Brits do. Yeah. Travel back with me, if you will, to the 80s. The British seem to kind of own Broadway. Shows like Cats, Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon. They, in a way, kind of sucked the creative energy not intentionally, but that was the zeitgeist of that era. And Toon was one of the people who really kept the American musical kind of going concern. His shows were unique. Each one was a kind of occasion when they appeared. In doing research on the book, I was particularly struck by around the time he did Grand Hotel and then Will Rogers' Follies, there was a real boosterism among Americans, people like Jerry Herman and others saying, come on, do this for the team. Got to make this show a hit for the team. When Will Rogers' Follies opened. That was in the aftermath of Operation Desert Storm. There was a kind of, I don't know, jingoism, a real resurgent patriotism. And of course, Will Rogers was an all-American favorite. You can't get any more all-American than Will Rogers. And it opened right around the same time as Miss Saigon, the latest big British blockbuster. And there was an edge in terms of people in the industry really wanting Will Rogers to be a hit. And of course, it won the Tony Award over Miss Saigon. And Tommy Toon won for direction and choreography. So, yeah, in a way, he was sort of, I won't say David going up against Goliath, but he was like an MVP for the American musical during that period. And part of it, I often think the British invasion is made possible by the AIDS crisis because so many of the yeah. creators of American musicals die or are sidelined during this period. And Tommy Toon is the sort of survivor of that, or the one who's still there to carry on the torch. 
When Grand Hotel opened, Michael Bennett had just died about a year and a half before that. Geller Champion and Bob Fosse were gone. And it felt like he was the last one, the last yeah. one standing, certainly. So there was that energy behind his acclaim as well. And we don't know. We'll never know what we lost, the AIDS crisis. We'll never really understand. Not only what the shows Michael Bennett and Ron Field and all those people might have created, but the dancers who were working in those shows who would have been the next generation of choreographers and directors. We almost skipped a generation to then Casey and Jerry Mitchell. There was a generation in between there. I don't know if you call it a full generation, but you know what I mean. A group of people in between there who we never got to see what they would do. There were people that I worked with. You know, I was a dancer in the late 70s to the late 80s. I worked with Chris Chadman, who was a protege of Bob Fosse's. There's no doubt in my mind that he couldn't have gone on, been a marquee name as a director choreographer. A choreographer named Adam Grammis. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I don't remember. He danced in Shirley MacLaine's act for a long time. He began to make a transition to choreography. He was a protege of Graziella Daniels. I worked with him on a couple of shows. Again, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have been one of that next generation of star choreographers. And those are just two names. There are dozens, hundreds of other people like that. The same with designers, writers. Absolutely. Every aspect of the business. Every aspect of the business. Yeah. The next chapter in your book, I thought was probably the most interesting, but the most heartbreaking in a way, because we go into this period for Tommy Toon where he puts a lot of focus on performing, which is great. And I think probably personally for him was very rewarding since that was of equal importance to him as his directing choreography career. But it also seems like he just doesn't have success in finding the right shows to stage during Mm -hmm. this period. None of them quite work out. And you tie it in a little bit to the death of his agent, his longtime collaborator and agent. You can see that his career sort of drifts at this point. Yes. Tommy always gave his agent, Eric Shepard, a lot of credit for giving him career advice, really shepherding, no pun intended, shepherding his career. And Shepard was another person who died of AIDS. He died right around around the time Toon was doing Will Rogers Follies. And he said, I was lost without him. He said, I didn't have that broad range strategic view that Eric Shepard could give me. So yes, you know, it's funny after Will Rogers Folly, as we said, he was the king of Broadway. He could do anything he wanted. It's almost unimaginable to think that that would be the last Tommy Toon hit on Broadway. The last Tommy Toon hit, but not the last Tommy Toon show. Don't go away. Kevin and I will be back with all of the backstage drama of The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, the Tommy Toon production of Grease, the ill-fated Busker's Alley, and more right after this quick break. Give a man enough rope and he can get all tangled in the figure eights he tries to spin, but I've had luck and my rope made me free. I spun my fancy figures, wrote my columns, made my speeches, loved my horses, loved my family, spun a lovely life. That's what happened to me. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also 
also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50. 50 at factormeals.com slash bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's almost unimaginable to think that that would be the last Tommy Toon hit on Broadway. And he was young. He was in his prime. The shows that he was involved with in the next several years didn't work out for a variety of reasons. Including his biggest flop, Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public. He has a major humiliating flop with that show. Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public seems like a great idea. And actually, the score by Carol Hall, who also wrote the first Whorehouse, is quite good. And a couple of people I talked to about the show said they workshopped it at the Nederlander Theater. You would have thought it was going to be the biggest hit in years based on the reaction to the workshop. I'm leaving Texas, and the more that I've been thinking, have to come right out and say I ain't too sad. I'm leaving Texas, and my heart, it is not sinking. No, it bitter pats away, cause it's so glad. Goodbye to good old boys, sucking on their long neck beers, bellies hanging out like sleeping. Home. Goodbye to listening to them sing about their mamas while they treat their wives as sweethearts just like dogs. Dirty dogs. <laughs> it's hell, this Texas. Yeah, it's dusty and it's barren. It's got a lot of chiggers, ticks, and gnats. Farewell to Texas and to women with big hair and all those men in high heeled boots and stupid hats. Bowls of chili, never really liked it much. I gotta say, it always gave me gas. Goodbye to rodeos and watching big old cowboys wrestle steers until they both fall on their ass. We're going far here, and I hope nobody sees us. You drive a car here, better honk if you love Jesus. So to 
before someone hears this song in Texas. I'm leaving Texas. But there was a disconnect between a workshop with everyone in leotards and the show that emerged in all its gaudy spectacle and so forth. I suspect that if Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public were produced 20 years later, it would have had a better reception than it got at the time. I think the AIDS epidemic cast a pall on a show like that. It also seemed, and I saw that show, that the economy of what Tommy Toon did, the taste was suddenly thrown out the window for just more is more is more, whereas less is more seemed to be his watchword prior to that. As I think I said in the book, he wasn't able to do with... Las Vegas grandeur, what he was able to do with Ziegfeld Follies. He wasn't able to kind of scale it down and simplify it. It just seemed overstuffed. Even the Bob Mackie costumes, which are fabulous, it was more is more, and it seemed out of character with his other shows. And you quote somebody in your book saying, what happened to Toon? What happened to Tommy Toon? You also have to remember, this was a double whammy, because Best Little Horror House Goes Public opened at the end of the 1993-94 season, and a few days later, Later, again, part of that same season, the revival of Greece, which he served as a production supervisor for, opened. And didn't he have his name over the title of it? Well, it was billed as the Tommy Toon production, and it didn't get good reviews, although it was a huge hit. It ran for a long time. It toured very successfully. It didn't get good reviews. One of the reviewers that I quote said, what happened to Tommy Toon? He had such great taste and style, and he's come up with these two shows. But every artist we can name has had flops. Of course. Unfortunately, these two were back-to-back and seemed shockingly out of tone with Tommy Toon's style. But, you know, Greece, you know, Toon's always been very adamant that he did not want to do revivals on Broadway. He says revivals should be for summer stock. He said, if we keep doing revivals on Broadway, what are we going to revive in 20 years? And he's absolutely right about that. So he's never wanted to do revivals on Broadway. The Weislers asked him to do this revival of Greece. He didn't want to do that. But Jeff Calhoun, who he'd worked with on Will Rogers Follies and who had directed his one-man show that did a couple of weeks on Broadway a few years earlier, Toon suggested that Jeff Calhoun directed and choreographed it, and he would serve as a production supervisor. So it would have the Tommy Toon imprimatur on it, but he didn't direct and choreograph it. But his influence, and I talk about this in the book, his influence came to bear in terms of the show's visual style. I'm not a fan of Grease, but he had some interesting ideas for that show, and he had some good people at Billy Porter. Beauty school dropout Hanging around Nobody knew who Billy Porter was at that time. He was terrific. And the show was, like I said, it was a huge hit. It didn't win any awards, but it was a huge, huge hit. And up until Chicago, it was the Weisler's biggest hit. Right. Talk about some of these other projects that didn't even make it to New York during this period and that he worked on. There were a number of different shows. Happy nights are always at in Busker Alley. Because we're here to greet you. You'll be glad you came tonight to Busker Alley And we're glad to meet you now Then friends, you're in for a treat Here's our stage right here on the street No fancy lights, 
but then the price is right. Whatever's your pleasure, there's no fairer thoroughfare than Buster Alley. You know, I think that if Buster Alley had come to Broadway, had opened on Broadway as it had been planned to, it would have had a run. It would have been seen as counter-programming to shows like Rent and Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk. Mm -hmm. It was very much an old-fashioned show with a score by the Sherman Brothers, which is terrific. And Tommy Toon is the star of it as well. Tommy Toon's a star. Jeff Calhoun directed and choreographed it. And they went out on the road. They toured it for about six months. I think there were problems inherent in the book. Like Peter Stone says, it's always the book. But I think they they were working on it. Peter Stone came in and worked on the book. They had begun to get better reviews on the road. And then, of course, this is also part of, you know, Broadway legend. Toon famously broke his foot near the end of the out-of-town tour. Right before they're supposed to come to Broadway. Right before they're supposed to come to New York. They thought about postponing. They tried to get Gregory Hines to come in as a temporary replacement. Nothing worked, and they ended up closing the show. I think if that show had come to New York, it would have had a run. It would have, I think, been seen as a rather old-fashioned mm-hmm. show, but it had a good score. And some extraordinary numbers, right? Fabulous numbers. Cause I've got tap heavy feet Happy feet, love is so lovely and life is so sweet. I'm tap happy, hearted, me heart set the beat. I never could dance like this before. Got to blame it on someone I adore for. And the concept for that show, the concept for the show's chorus actually came from Tune. They said they were auditioning dancers, and he said the choreography that Jeff had created looked great on the men, not so good on the women. So they came up with the idea of having a stage full of alter egos for Charlie, the lead character who Tune played. Me tap happy feet. There were 10 men who were spectacular dancers and performers. in a way, a kind of element of the concept musical, if you will. Sort of the flip of nine, in a way. Yeah, sort of the flip of nine. That's a good way of putting it. So there were interesting things going on in the show. It had a great set by Tony Walton. Again, I think if the show had come in, it could have had a run. And Toon was a star. He was an above-the-title star who I think would have brought audiences in. It's just a shame that it turned out the way it did. Easter Parade. I remember reading about Easter Parade, I don't know, in the Times somewhere. And I thought, Tommy Toon, Irving Berlin, Easter Parade, all these great numbers, Sandy Duncan. This is a hit. This is going to be a hit. It's a no-brainer. And when I interviewed Toon, I said, what happened? I thought this was a surefire thing. He said, we couldn't get the book right. And he said, the budget, we couldn't make the numbers, the money numbers work. Right. And he said, it just, we couldn't make it work. So I really feel like that, in a way, that's a real shame. It seems like a natural. In some ways, I sort of feel like that's the last time I heard about a new Tommy Toon show. It sort of marked an ending like, well, I guess he's not going to do another show. To me, it feels a bit like the end of an era in a way that, you know, he's someone who, as I think I wrote this in the book, he's someone who could take care of business. He could Mm -hmm. get things done. And the fact that he wasn't able to with this show and Peter Stone had come in to work on the book. They did a couple of workshops. They couldn't get the money numbers to work. It just felt like it was the end of an era for that kind of show. It felt a little bit like the echo 
economics of Broadway defeated him. Had shifted. They'd shifted. Had shifted so much he yeah. wasn't able to function in it anymore. Yeah. Which yeah. is sad in a way because he's still very much alive. One of the contrasts between writing this book and your Fosse book is that you had Tommy Toon as a source. You know, in archival circles, we refer to primary source material, meaning right. the real thing. Well, Tommy Toon was my primary source material for this book. Yeah, so that was a gift. And to have his enthusiastic cooperation on it. But all during this time, he was continuing to work as a solo performer. You know, he had right. an act with Manhattan Rhythm Kings that he toured for years all over the world very successfully. You know, as he said, you work on things all the time and some things work out and some things don't. And you go on to the next thing. And he always had his performing career that was very successful. So my sense from speaking with him, and I hope I convey this in the book, he doesn't dwell on those things. He doesn't think badly about them or anything. He's perfectly happy to talk with me about them. But they're just sort of the kind of natural ebb and flow of a career. So what do you think his legacy is? What is the legacy of Tommy Toon? He was a tremendous stylist, and he was nimble, a nimble stylist. He could fit a style to whatever the material called for. So when we look back at his work, the Will Rogers Follies couldn't be any different from Grand Hotel, which couldn't be any different from Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, which couldn't be any different from The Club. The tremendous versatility that he displayed is remarkable. He's the polar opposite of some like Bob Fosse or even Gower Champion, who had a kind of worldview that they imposed on whatever material they were working on. Toon's shows were not like that. Each of them looked very different. Having said that, there are elements that appear throughout his work, things that we've talked about today, simplicity, uh, an intellectual rigor, a really symbiotic working relationship with designers who really he worked closely with to help bring his vision to fruition. He's an important figure in the history of the Broadway musical and in particular the history of the director-choreographer because he is a direct link to this older generation that started with Agnes DeMille, Robbins, Michael Kidd, Champion, Fosse, Bennett, Joe Layton, people we've mentioned. And then he's also someone who straddles another generation and has influenced, again, as we've said, people like Susan Stroman, Casey Nicolau, Jerry Mitchell, and so forth. So he's a conduit between an older sort of what we think of as the golden age, these talents that have brought the American musical into the 21st century. So in some ways, his role as a conduit may be even larger and more important than the individual shows that he did. It's so interesting. I think the most Tommy Toon-like show on Broadway right now is probably Hamilton in terms of the way it's staged and put on the stage. Talk more about that. Well, it's a unit set. Yeah. All of the storytelling that's done through the choreography and the physicality is done just through the bodies. Yeah. There's almost no scenery. There's only chairs on the stage. I hadn't thought about it that way. It follows that aesthetic, I think, to a great extent. And I don't know how much Andy Blankenbuehler was influenced by Tommy Toon, but I suspect he's of the right age to have seen a lot of those shows and to sure. have absorbed that. It'd be fascinating to talk to him at some point and see what that influence has had on him. Hamilton strikes me as... It's funny because the choreographer is not the director. Tommy Cale is the director. But it strikes me as almost the essence of a director-choreographer show. They were able to make it seamless. You don't know who did what. 
balance, yeah. which of course yeah. is the goal when you have a director and a choreographer is that yeah. somehow you end up with a product where I can't tell you who did which part of the staging. Yeah. yeah. So that goes right into what you were saying. It is the essence of a director choreographer show, even though it has two people doing it. And it's maybe not one big giant musical sequence, but it is extending these musical sequences for long periods of time, keeping that ball in the air, as you said about Tommy Toon. Also, it goes back and forth seamlessly between dialogue and song, and one flows directly into the other in a way that a lot of other musicals that are on Broadway right now don't. Yeah, it has all the hallmarks of a tune musical for all those things you said, yeah. Now I need to go back and see Hamilton with that in mind. Thank you so much, Kevin. I have thoroughly enjoyed these conversations. My guest today has been Kevin Winkler, author of the fascinating new book, Everything is Choreography, the musical theater of Tommy Toon. I'm up among the stars, on earthly things I frown. I'm throwing off the bars that held me down. I'll pay the piper when times are riper. Just now I shan't, because you see I'm dancing and I can't be bothered now. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. I often record at least twice as much conversation as ends up in the public episodes, and this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. You will also have the opportunity to ask us any questions about Broadway musicals that you would like to hear answered and to propose topics and subject matter that you would like me to cover, all of which I will incorporate into a special series of Ask Me Anything About Broadway episodes. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family 
cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.